Hey, I'm Jeff Reed. I'm Craig Killian. And this is From First to Last Podcast. Podcast. It's a podcast where my friend Craig and I, we get together each week. We work our way through a director's theatrical filmography from their first film all the way through to their last. And Craig, we're back. Oh, yeah, we're back. We're back for season eight. Season eight. Can you believe it? My Lord, man, that's hardcore. That's hard. <laughs> and with everything that's been going on, I was like, man, I don't know if we're going to hit season eight. Oh, uh, we were close. We were close. We were close, but we made it. It was dangerous. It sure was. It sure was. Uh, I was actually doing some art-related stuff the other day for our podcast, and I was, like, working on stuff for our Season 9 and Season 10 just to get it all done in in one hit, and it dawned on me that, like, Season 8's a pretty big achievement. It's a fantastical (laughs) achievement, man. The fact that, you know, there's, like, and there's still people listening, it's fantastic. What's actually... Love you all. What's actually wonderful is there's more people listening, Craig. I know, it's weird. (laughs) They like us when we're not. Delivery. <laughs> Maybe they like our old stuff better than the new stuff. Possibly. Like old stuff better Regurgitator than people. Stuff. All our fans in uh, not in Australia, check out Regurgitator. They're yeah, exactly. You the, might like them. We used to call them the Gurge. The Gurge. As we do in Australia, the Gurge. The Gurge. I got to be a guest on a podcast uh, last year and I got to talk Stanley Tucci. And Ooh. one of the fun things I got to do was talk about how Australians like to shorten everything. The Tooch. Which was, and we called Stanley Tucci, the Tooch. So uh, <laughs> I talked about a few people that have those sort of nicknames. You talk about the beef? Yeah, we talked about the beef. Oh, the beef. So, Share the beef. Share. Well, Craig, so last week. Today we're talking about the bird. We are <laughs> talking about the bird. <laughs> Timmy B. Tim B. Timmy B. Um, But last season, we talked all things Michael Mann, and that was quite a while ago, Craig. Feels like it. Yeah, that's because it legitimately is. Oh, okay, cool. That's all right then. That's all right then. (laughs) I I honestly can't remember the last time we recorded a Michael Mann episode. It might have been October 2021. I don't know. Yeah, it probably feels longer ago. It wasn't as exciting as I wanted it to be. (laughs) The season? Yeah, the season. Isn't it funny? Um, I feel like it really took off with a bang. Oh, yeah. but And it's interesting. We're finding with a lot of these, you know, what you would call the mainstay great directors. Yeah. You know, the, the like when you think about who are the most prominent working directors in Hollywood, the majority of them seem to get this weird taper off towards the end. I'm very scared that um, Quentin Tarantino was right. In, in what did Quentin Tarantino say? So Quentin Tarantino, so Quentin Tarantino has his ten films, yep. and eleven film rules. Yeah. The reason, exact reason being is he goes because I follow um, careers, and after about ten films, all the best ones they seem to taper off. Interesting. I thought it was just a coke field rant, <laughs> coke field rant, but it wasn't. There's truth. Would you say truth. say a uh, Senor Spielberg? Um, I haven't seen West Side Story. I've not seen it. I'm actually really excited to see it. So I'm but like, okay, to. so here's, I enjoyed, I really enjoyed Ready Player One. 
Yeah, me too. Um, Fun popcorn film. But there's nothing about it that makes me go, Spielberg! Yeah, that's true. You know what I mean? Like, that could have been a Sean Levy film. That's very valid, Craig. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of more wisecracks. Yeah. But that could have been a Sean Levy film. You know what I mean? Like, there's... I know there's bits in there that you just go, fuck, man, that's Spielberg for sure. But it just... It, it, is there a point where you just go, is that groundbreaking? Yeah, true. Now, I guess I want to watch West Side Story because yeah. I think... I've heard good things. That's where Spielberg's strengths are. Yep. You know what I mean? And not fanta- not too fantastical. He loves fantastic realism. Yeah. Keeping it grounded. Yeah, keeping it grounded. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, and so that's where I think it is. He's also an uber movie buff. Yeah. So a film like West Side Story, say the 60s version, you could imagine Spielberg would have watched that numerous times before even taking on the project. Yeah. Well, so. well, I saw that girl who won the Academy Award for um, Best Supporting Actress. Yeah. And I saw a clip of her in it today, and it was fantastic. And I was yeah. like, okay, I have to watch this. Yeah, I, just, I'm, I'm I pretty hate keen. musicals, though. That's my problem. Do you? Not a big I'm fan. I'm coming around. Man. I like them, Craig. I'm on board. Sorry, I still can't do it. I That's still, all right. I can watch Disney animated musicals. Yes, I can. Yeah, they're, they're but a bit they're different. different. Yeah, exactly. Different kettle of fish. Yeah, I actually the I could go on a big rant about musicals, but the, I think the big game changer I got to see Wicked live, Wicked, and it was so good, and it just made me really appreciate the art. Mm. It was almost like a little gateway. Still not super fanning on all things Andrew Lloyd Webber. Oh um, no, I but, was it with you. No, it wasn't with you. What? Um, we went and saw Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, was it with yeah, you? And yeah, it was, it was terrible. You. That was. The worst thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> that was so fucking horrible. But uh, but it was also Anthony Wallow, who's usually the Australian, um, yeah, or Michael Crawford or anything. They weren't in it. No, it was because it was a midday session. Or I forget what they called. Yeah, we went to session. a matinee. Matinee, thank you. Um, because it was a matinee, they had like you know seconding. Yeah, <laughs> the, the understudies were all when there. He shot the, when he shot the fireball, yeah, and it mustn't have worked. And it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was it was disappointing too because I think it's one of those things Andrew Lloyd Webber's very fixed in his ways of keep it true to the way it was when it was released. Yeah. But 80s synths do not stand up to a modern time synth and you can get some great sounds whereas this sounded synth, horribly outdated. Synth is the most um dating music in the world. Yeah. It's like cell phones in a in exactly. a film. Like one of the worst things, like one of the things that breaks my heart is ever watching um, Rodka Howard, God bless his soul, um, Lady Hawk with Michelle oh, Pfeiffer. Oh, my word. And it is such a beautifully shot film. Everything about it looks fantastic. It's just... It's like you're selling Rodka Howard in a nightclub even though he's on a horse. Discotheque. Discotheque, yeah. I love it. Cocaine's a hell of a drug. It showed the 80s was a wild time, weren't they, Craig? But... Michael Mann, we did have a good time. It started off really strong, sort of tapered off towards the end. It did. Um, and unfortunately, like we found with a lot of our directors, that last film just doesn't seem to get there for us. But did you see the trailer to Tokyo Vice? Looks so good, Craig. I am very impressed with that. Yeah. So what did he do on that? Michael Mann directed the pilot. Okay, cool. Um, I don't know how involved he was in the rest of the production. Yeah, because his name doesn't pop up at No, it doesn't all. say from... 
the executive yeah. producer or from the maker of Heat. Yeah, that's almost like he's been scrubbed off the project. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I feel like it's something he was developing, if I remember all the way back to our my research. Yeah, but he's just ended up directing the pilot episode. And you'd probably expect he's got his fingers in the pie somehow. Sure, he was involved, Surely. like the show Luck. He was, yeah. He directed the pilot, but was heavily involved. Looks with interesting, acting. though, man. Looks mad. Interesting. It looks really good, and um, based on a true story. Based on a true story. Great cast. Um, so really excited for that. And we do know, as we talked about in our twenty twenty one wrap or twenty twenty two lead up, the episode we dropped in between seasons. Oh, yep. Uh, Michael Mann is also working on his Ferrari biopic, yeah. now starring Adam Driver yes, and Penelope Cruz and a whole host of other people. So that'll be coming very soon. But we're very excited, Craig, because this week we get to kick off Season 8. It's our introduction episode to one Mr. Tim Bartono. Burton. Yes. <laughs> I've been, Bert, Bert. I've been Bert. so excited for this, Craig. Bert. It's actually, I love <laughs> That's so probably, probably going to be there. I'm sorry, guys. That's probably going to be a joke that's going to keep popping that's up. That's Craig's running joke for the season, guys. Get <laughs> ready, ready for ready it. Ready it up. Hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I think after the two years that we've had, and we don't need to dwell on all things uh, COVID-19. Oh, yeah. Just um, all things life. Let's yeah. just call it all things life. Life it, is not meant to be amazing. I think it's pretty awesome to tackle after a very serious director in Michael Mann as well. Yeah. I, I'm very excited for a director who has a sense of humor. I'm pumped for the dark whimsy. Yes, me too. I love, um, and I've always been a big fan of it with Carter, I love dark fairy tales. I love them. Always have Hans Christian Anderson, those types of films. Yep. Those, the films, those types of things. I love Stories. those. Oh, because I believe, um, and I think I've said it before, I believe fear is a is something that needs to be put into like storytelling. Fun fear. Yeah, you know yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah. A fun fear where, you know, because fear is fun in small doses. Um, And Tim Burton's, this is his career. Yeah, he's, he's made a career out of it, hasn't he? Fear, whimsy, you know what I mean? Where he makes the fearful things look the... Yeah, I can't wait. Can't. Wait. I don't want to go too far into it. No. But I can't wait. But, like, I think... Um, oh, I don't want to go there yet. So yeah, I'm no, just going exactly to kick straight in. You just want to just bust into it. So, and I haven't even watched a single scene yet. Oh, I've, apart from his early we, shorts. We have watched his early short films. Uh, and, and in full disclosure, Craig and I had, we were planning on releasing a mini episode that was around his short films. Yep. Uh, and as I did my research and we watched it, we actually realized how intertwined those short yeah. films were with Burton's career. Hell yes. So they were really quite crucial to today's episode. So we're, if we go along, you're going to get this in two parts. And, and, and have and a great a, time with and it. And in a very quick review, they are fucked up. <laughs> you, need <to> go, <laughs> you need to go out and find these things, man. Yeah. They are fucked up. We can but share not them on bad, our socials. Like, not in a horrible way, but they're just like beautiful dark whimsy. He's very present early on. I know. I he's very <laughs> his his signature is so strong. Yeah, man. he he really knew what he was going for very early on. Oh, very early on. This is, and it just makes you so excited. Oh, those, it sure does. It's one of those first short films that I've looked at, and you just go, "Man, 
give this guy a budget. I don't know why they said give him Pee Wee Herman, but <laughs> Well, I'm really interested to find that and and my knowledge is and we'll get there a lot um soon, is a that lot. he was actually approached by Paul Rubens. Ooh. Well, look, Paul Rubens is a dark human being to begin with. And the character of Pee Wee Herman was originally not this family character. It oh, was, really? It was quite an adult um, stand-up routine. Can't wait. That's another thing. So this is good. we're really going to dive in. But I just thought I'd give a few little facts before we kick in to get you even more excited about cool. our uh, Tim Burton season. So <laughs> Tim Burton, he has a career that spans 37 years, 19 fe- feature films, and has grossed more than $4.4 billion at the worldwide box office. <laughs> He's actually, at, at the time of recording this, so we're in uh, early, March, nearly the end of March 2022. Yep. So if you're listening from the future, hello. We're oh. here. This is us speaking to you from the past. But at the time of recording, he's actually the 10th highest grossing director of all time. Wow. Which shocked me because when you think about a blockbuster director, yeah. so to speak, Tim Burton's sensibilities probably don't lend themselves a mainstream do you know what I mean I, I see your point and I think Hollywood is stupid in a lot of those regards yeah totally um, like it's the same with you wouldn't think Nolan films would do as good as they do yes that's you know true. what I mean like you wouldn't think Inception would done as amazing as it, you know because it wasn't dumbed down you know none of his films are ever dumbed no. down um, and so and these these off kilter directors yes you know Bring so much. Look, we'll fucking Sam Raimi. This is true. You know what I mean? And and yeah. I think these off-kilter directors are the ones that can bring in a lot of... Done properly, though. Yeah. But you do you I mean? think... I, I just want to elaborate more on what you, you're saying, Craig. Do you think that's because Nolan never dumbs down his films because he believes that an audience is intelligent enough yeah. not to have to be taken on the journey in that Bay-esque way, you know, which is lots of exposition. You know, a prime example is... Avatar, the last airbender of the movie. Uh, it was assumed that audiences could not keep up with such a, a fantasy setting. So you have an entire movie of exposition hoping to take you along the journey. Yes. Which a director, say like a Nolan, and I'm going to say in terms of the dark tones and the gothic nature yeah. of a Tim Burton film, Burton never goes, I can't go there. It's too dark for families. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, uh, obviously, movies like your Sweeney Todd's and things will get to later but i think burton never takes he never underestimates his audience i think i think stephen king puts it best and i think but as a rule i what i'm about to say i think it only exists for certain people yep um stephen king says write for yourself not for your audience and i think that's perfectly true um and it's just some people I think, and you, and if you look at, there's a lot of directors who just create their. They're not the journeyman directors. There's directors who make these films just for themselves. Yeah, and they're not popular. Yeah, like, it, you know, it's weird or whatever grabs the fancy of um the world around them. But a twisted sense of humor, yeah, is something that's prevalent to everyone. Everyone has that l- wicked sense of humor, and he puts that on the screen. And he so sure does. I think, obviously, talking about Burton, so. 
I think that's one of the reasons it's so big. Because if you go out there and you've seen the cookie-cutter films and all that stuff, I love cookie-cutter films, so I'm not Me bagging too. them out. Um, and then watch a Burton film, it's fucking refreshing. Yeah, it is. That's very refreshing. Um, I love Craig. So as part of my research, um, I've sort of done my usual searches through lots of avenues, watched lots of interviews. Tim Burton doesn't do a lot of sit-down interviews. He's he's a bit he's a private person. Um, <laughs> but what's really interesting is my preconceived idea of what a young Burton would be mm. sort of was right, but also really wrong. In this awesome. really fascinating way. And um, so uh, a, a big part of his early career, I've got to say thanks to a wonderful book uh, called Burton on Burton. Now we've got it sitting on the table here. Craig can see there's a lot of post-it notes in there, um, which is uh, a, a book where uh, a gentleman named Mark Salisbury has sat down and interviewed Tim Burton and really talked through those early oh, stages cool. of his career. Yeah, that's what I was looking at then. I was like, Burton on Burton. So Burton wrote it. Oh, okay, Burton. No, no. I, I thought Burton. so too. Uh, that, at <laughs> Richard the start. Burton wrote it? So, um, <laughs> but what's really Horrible awesome movie. is the book's been revised a couple of times as Burton's career goes on. And Johnny Depp has written two forwards for the book. So oh, wow. he wrote it when it was originally released. And he tells this wonderful story about um, the moment that he met Tim Burton. Oh, and, yeah. and it actually, it's a really great piece of writing uh, from Johnny Depp. And actually the, the editor uh, puts a little funny thing talking about how Johnny Depp gave him that pretty much the last minute before they had to hit print. And so they like have the hassle, but Johnny Depp talks about the fact that he was actually uh, he was locked into a contract with Twenty One Jump Street yep. at the time. Now, for people who don't know, there's going to be a lot of Johnny Depp talk in this season. I he love is, Johnny Depp. He is a uh, what an amazing, uh, amazing. I actor. I enjoy Johnny Depp. I, I love him. him. I love him. Um, so, I can't wait so to talk about in him. Every film. Uh, <laughs> but in this, he talks about how he was starring in Twenty One Jump Street at the time. Yeah. And he actually had tried to get out to do some feature films, but they had locked him into his contract. Oh, really? And so he'd reached a point where he, he was pretty much not even trying in the TV show because he was hoping he would get fired so he could yeah. go to work because he couldn't get out of his contract in any way, shape or form. And they just weren't firing him. <laughs> uh, and so he managed, he got to this point where directors didn't want to meet him anymore for films because... Yeah, they he just was, knew they weren't going to get him. They weren't going to get him. So then one day Tim Burton asks for a meeting and sits down with him for Edward Scissorhands. And the only other director that had given Johnny Depp a big screen chance at this yeah. point was John Waters for Crybaby. Ah, yeah, that's right. And so he talks about the moment that he met Tim Burton. He's like, there was just this instant moment where he realized he was sitting with a genius. <laughs> and so he's like, he wasn't awkward. And he wasn't um, like weird in a sense. He was different, but he could tell he was a genius. And they both had this sort of... Um, Bear in mind. Johnny Depp. He's fucking weird and awkward. <laughs> so <laughs> he talked I mean? about that. I think he just of, found his own Oh, he people. found his people. You my people. <laughs> but a lot of people talk about the moment they meet Tim Burton is they realise that he is a genius. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, there's, there's no doubt genius. behind that. So, I think all geniuses are fucking weird. <laughs> well, you've got to be because there's, if not, you'd just be like everyone else, wouldn't exactly, you? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I look, I don't mean that as an insult, man. No. Don't fucking be weird. So, Craig, before we dive too deep into his career, let's just take a little moment and let's just get a little brief overview of Tim Burton and let's just hear about him. 
Born August 25, 1958, Tim Burton grew up in suburban California. Despite a healthy and happy upbringing, Burton himself always felt out of place. This led Burton to immerse himself in art, where he drew and made short films. His drawings in particular led him to earn an apprenticeship with Disney Animation. A few years later, he started directing short films for Disney, before making his directorial debut with Pee-wee's Big Adventure. His signature gothic stylings with a healthy dose of fantasy, humour and whimsy have earned Burton an extremely devoted fan base. With 19 feature films directed, including Beetlejuice, Batman, Edward Scissorhands, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and so many more, Burton has forged a career that has spanned almost 40 years, earned two Oscar nominations, and ranks him as the 10th highest grossing director of all time, with over 4.4 billion at the box office. Let's talk about Tim Burton. So good, Craig. Now, Tim Burton himself, he was born August 25th, 1958. 58? Yes. To Jean, his mum, and William, or Bill for short, Burton. Bill, oh, I fucking love Bill that. Burton. Bill Burton. You're going to love it more, Craig. Bill and Jean, Jean Burton. his mum, was a gift shop owner. They just don't like big syllables. <laughs> Gene, Tim! <laughs> Easy to put on a Christmas stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and his brother's Mac and Guy. <laughs> actually, we will talk about his brother soon. Oh, shit. Okay. Uh, so, Gene actually was a gift shop owner. And this was a very unique and quirky little gift shop, oh, Craig, where everything sold was cat-themed. <gasps> and the gift shop was called Cats Plus. Oh, wow. He's lived in that fucking wheel. We all had those people at our school like that. Wow. So um, his dad was a, mi- a former minor league baseball player. Oh, wow. That's who, random. Who, um, for most of Burton's life, was actually working for uh, Burbank Parks Parks and Recs Department. Oh, cool. Now, um, I throw these things in there every, epi- every intro episode we do because – what I've found as this season goes on mm. is just how much personality can come just from parents oh, so much. into a human in the sense that you hear that his mum was obviously quirky. Yep. But had a stylistic sense because she made sure that everything was cat themed and within a within a thing and to keep a shop like that going and you must do okay at it. Yeah. So uh, immediately I can tell there's a quirky creative person in the house exactly and there's a there's a sporty sporty competitive person sporty hard working person yeah so you know like you you start thinking about that and you go oh there's a little bit of burton i could describe burton as that yeah exactly um and burton actually was somewhat of a sporty child as well that is fucking weird yeah i know that right is fucking weird but i guess you know i can't picture him in my mind so, but I think that's a good point for every parent. Every parent needs to understand the fucking impact they're going to have on their kids. hundred <laughs> percent. So sort yourself out before you have kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sort yourself out, man, because you're, they'll, they'll, they'll find the gaps in your personality, man, and they will rip it open and they will say it back at you. Oh, <laughs> yes, yes, my friend. We've got Harrison. What the fuck did you <laughs> Harrison at the moment is talking quite a lot, and I've realized how often I say, oh, my gosh. 
uh, oh. to things. And so the other day he dropped something and in perfect time went, oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh. sweet Lord, i got to sort Kind of came in to me the other guy. I go, hey, hey, darling. Hey, boof. <laughs> call me boof. I call you boof. <laughs> <laughs> I get, I get, hey, Harrison. Hey, buddy. <laughs> so there's a win. But, yes, they're little mirrors, aren't they? So for Burton, through his schooling, he was known as a quiet student. Yep. Loved to draw, paint, and watch movies. And he really adored the works of Dr. Seuss. Cool. Roald Dahl he loved. I think and Dr. Seuss, especially Roald Dahl, are darker yeah, images as well. Totally. And very, if you think about Dr. Seuss, Burton has this think of Beetlejuice, you think of Nightmare Before Christmas, they're very curly and elongated, stripy images you know, a lot in Dr. Seuss. Imagery-wise, yeah, exactly. I can see, um, you can see, funny, if you, were to, if you were to say a Tim Burton film, it's almost like if Roald Dahl did a Dr. Seuss film. <laughs> it's so true, isn't it, Craig? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he, like wrote Dr. Se- a Dr. Seuss character. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's, yeah, that's very much sounds like, that's like a Burton. So true. And the other hero of his growing up was he absolutely adored the stop motion works of Ray Harryhausen. Oh, Ray Harryhausen. So, Jason Argonauts was on the TV the other day. Oh, was it? Yeah, man. I was I was waiting for it, but then no, I just couldn't see through it. <laughs> um, I think it's really important, like I sort of alluded to earlier, I think a lot of people would assume that Tim Burton was this reclusive sort That's of withdrawn person. Yeah. Um, but he wasn't actually, he wasn't reclusive. He wasn't an isolated student by any means. He actually had friends and a lot of friends. Oh, good. Was quite social. And he was actually a water polo player. Wow, man. Yeah. That is totally weird. Uh, not just that, but he loved his art and grew up in a suburban California. And so I think, again, I didn't put two and two together until we watched the, the short films. Yeah. Just how prevalent suburbia is in a lot of Tim Burton films. Yeah, actually. That is true. He's a, I think a lot of things he built around suburbia. Yeah. Around that stylized, ironically, 1960s type suburbia. Yeah, that totally. That he would have been raised in. So I think we're going to find that throughout his film, there's probably two things I think we're going to find. And I'm putting it out there early because usually I have these hors moments halfway through the season. And yeah. it's like everyone's been like, everybody knows that. Oh, I guess. That's what discovery is about. I think a lot of the towns that Burton's films take place in are going to be suburban Burbank or yeah. some iteration of that. Yep. And I think also his lead characters are also going to be little versions of Tim Burton. Yeah, true. And and so as we sort of work through, uh, he doesn't necessarily say it in interviews. He's been asked a lot, is this you in this? Are you Edward Scissorhands? Are you Sweeney Todd? Are you Vincent? <laughs> you know, all those yeah. sort of things. And a, a lot of them, the times he says, well, it probably is. Because for Burton, what's really important to him is a connection to the main character. Yeah. And so if he doesn't feel a connection, he's not going to pursue that project. And we'll get to sort of things that come and go in that. And uh, I think his experience on Planet of the Apes, which we'll get to sort of mid-season, sort of echoes what can happen in this space. But so growing up in suburban California, but Burton really felt where he is an outsider, he felt felt like he didn't belong in the suburbs. Or amongst his schoolmates. Cool. 
So he still was able to do life in these spaces, but he just knew that this wasn't his place. Yeah. And so um, I really think that we will see just this quite prominent. Um, So there is a great, um, for anyone interested in some of those interviews where he talks, there's a really great uh, Molten on Molten is a podcast by Leonard Molten. Uh, And he sits down uh, during, I think it might have been a fantastic fest uh, for Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Yep. Um, And Burton really talks about this in that interview really great. That'd be interesting, man, especially with Molten interviewing. Uh, Molten and his daughter. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that'd be even better. It's really good, actually. So check that out. Love Leonard Moulton. So in My brother threw a book at him, that, of his book at me once. <laughs> they were big they're books, They're big dude. fucking books, man. If anyone's <laughs> ever seen a Leonard Moulton book, they're fucking big. They and he threw big. it at my head once. Oh, my God. And hit me. This is my oldest brother, John. We love you, Johnny. Yeah. We love Not you, at that Johnny. moment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Craig, in Burton's early teens, he began experimenting with 8mm film. Yep. He... Actually used the medium to avoid writing or reading for book reports at school. <laughs> so what he worked out was that um, he would like do a project on eight mil film and be able to present it, and most people would be wowed by the effort that he went to and not really see that he didn't read the book or anything. <laughs> so, so <laughs> I did that once. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so he had he had home movies Smoke that he and made. Mirrors. Yeah, that's exactly mm. right. Misdirection, Craig. Exactly. That's right. Uh, and, and aptly, nice little segue, because there was a film where he played Harry Houdini. He made a little oh. film where he played Harry Houdini. Or he did, I love this one. He did a psychological, a psychology report for school where he showed photos and to the themes, to uh, a theme playing over the top of Welcome to My Nightmare by Alice Cooper. Um, and then using stop motion techniques made himself get eaten by a beanbag chair and awesome. uh, they loved it. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> All quality, no content. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. exactly right. Um, true artist, <laughs> a true Damn artist. Right. So at 13, he actually creates a short film called the Island of Dr. Agour. Now it was an animated film inspired by the Island of Dr. Moreau. Yeah. One of those ones where Burton's talked about it. There's not really any evidence of the film out there anymore because no. it's so long ago. And uh, so he has it. He's got it somewhere, hasn't he? Well, he's actually been really awesome and passed on some of his work, early work, for there was a great uh, Museum of Modern Art exhibition that travelled the world for the life of Tim Burton. Yeah. And some things that were believed to be lost were actually uncovered for that exhibition. So, oh, cool. Um, some really cool stuff. So throughout this, this his teens, he plays with film and continues to draw and sketch. And um, his drawing and sketching became something that he just did all the time. He was constantly working on that. And this passion actually led him to win a competition oh. for his art where the prize was $10. <laughs> and his anti-litter poster was actually displayed on all the garbage trucks of Burbank for two months. Oh, awesome. That would be good. <laughs> if it was on a garbage truck, I'd be pumped. <laughs> So this actually leads Burton to begin a side hustle where around Burbank, he would get paid by local residents to paint artworks for Christmas and Halloween on their windows. That's he's good. So he'd walk around and doing this. So he's at an early age, he's actually learning how to use his craft professionally. And That's a thriving I, industry. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so we're sort of going to move a bit forward. So he graduates in 1976. After graduating high school, Burton was accepted into CalArts. 
Now, before we really dive too deep into this period of his life, which is where he's honing his craft to become a professional, uh, I really wanted to take a little detour, if that's cool, Craig. Detour. So we can have a little chat actually to what CalArts is. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was about to ask. And the illustrious alumni that... Burton Ooh, worked with. Illustrious alumni of the oh, Illuminati. Do you like how official that sounds? <laughs> it's pretty, pretty I awesome. I am illuminated by your illustrious alumni. <laughs> <laughs> so, CalArts, or the California Institute of Arts, was formed in the early 60s. And pretty much, it was actually formed out of necessity. Now, at the time, there were really two great creative schools in the U.S. Yep. Uh, one was a prestigious uh, Chonard Art School, mm-hmm. and the other was the Los Angeles Conservatory of Music. Now, both were facing extreme financial difficulties, and uh, Chonard, their founder, Nelbert Chonard, was really unwell at the time. Nelbert? Yeah, mm. French. Ooh. French Craig. I've, I've been taking Palais-vous Duolingo France, lessons. Duolingo <laughs> lessons. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so Chonard's actually speaking while really unwell with a close friend who mm-hmm. was uh, Walt Disney. And uh, they were they decide together that they're going to merge the two institutes of uh, Chonard Institute, which yep. was a fine arts school, and the Los Angeles Conservatory of Music to create this one-stop sort of campus of the creative arts. Yep. And so CalArts is born. Now, the, the Chonard in- Institute actually has a long history with Walt Disney. It was Disney was actually really a firm believer that his artists and animators needed to be trained in the fine arts. Yep. So when people came on board to work for Disney as an animator, he would actually send them to the Chonard Institute to be oh. trained in fine arts. Oh, fantastic. For a second, I was like, ah, Disney's just using them to get no, no, students. No. So, but well, he's actually sending them there. He's a savvy businessman. Of course. So he, he knows that there is uh, a prospect for him on the horizon that he can utilize to his own advantage. But he'd actually been sending uh, his animators to be upskilled there for years. So... During the 30s, actually. So when that original golden age of animation was starting to happen, Disney was making sure he was get he had the the most trained and the highest skilled artists working for him. So Disney's dream for the school was that it was a university that taught students the arts, and CalArts actually became the first U.S.-based educational institute that awarded degrees for students of both visual and performing arts. Oh, wow. Yeah, pretty fascinating. That is fascinating, man. I always just assumed, like, you know, somewhere like Paris would have been the first. Well, for the US, this was. Not not necessarily the world. Oh, international. Okay, not necessarily the world. So Disney really wanted an institution as well that he could continue sending his animators. And his hope was that there would be an institution where he would, um, one, be able to harness new talent and mold them. But he'd also realized that he'd reached a point in the 60s where the golden age of animation, all the animators where they they were, um, oh, I wish I could remember their name. They were seen as the nine, the old nine or something along those lines. There were nine or eight or nine original animators at Disney Animation who were all becoming of an age where they were starting to become too old to do this job. Yep. So Disney was in this space where if he didn't bring up some emerging talent that he was going to be left without people who could actually make his films. So 
the the creation of CalArts also sees a means to that problem. Smart, man. Yeah, very much so. Um, so now in the late 60s is actually when Walt Disney passes and CalArts is only in its very early genesis. Yeah. And so Roy Disney then joins the board in place of Walt to keep Disney's legacy going throughout all this. So in the mid-60s, uh, CalArts forms an alumni association with 12 founding board members. The uh, association's purpose was to support students that came into the program uh, throughout their arts and bring mentoring, encouragement and, and empowerment to assist them in their professional pathways. Now, before we even talk about who attended, oh, have a listen to the founding board here Ooh. for these 12. Now, there is Mary Costa. Now, Mary Costa is an opera singer. She's an actor and yep. the voice of Aurora from Sleeping Beauty. My Lord. Yep. Edith Head. She is an eight-time Oscar-winning costume designer from the golden era. Yep. She did Ginger Rogers, oh, Fred geez. Astaire. Pretty much the who's who of that original golden era of cinema. There is also Gail Storm. Now, she was a singer and actress. Mark Davis, who was one of the founding animators for Disney's Nine Old Men. Oh, is it? Yeah. Uh, Tony uh, Duquette, he was a costume and set designer. Man. Harold Grieve, he was a motion picture art director and interior designer. John Hench, he was an artist, designer, and later would become director for Disney Animation. It's a bit... Oh yeah, these I I don't I I won't lie I had, I don't recognize these names but these people you can it's just talent. the story behind them. Legendary animator Chuck Jones. Oh wow! Of Chucky, all the Looney yeah. Tunes fame, uh, Henry Mancini. Yeah. Legendary composer of Henry Mancini. Now people who don't know what he's worked on, the theme to Pink Panther, James Gunn. He wrote Moon River for Breakfast at Tiffany's. So he is an absolute legend. Marty Page. Now he's the legendary pianist and composer for artists such as Ella Fitzgerald, Peggy Lee, just a whole slew of amazing people. Nelson Riddle. He was an arranger and composer for Sinatra, Judy Garland. <laughs> Um, and Millard Sheets, who was an artist, a teacher, and an architectural designer. This is amazing. You, so is there a book on these? Do you know? Oh, I would love to read all of I know, this. same. That would be so interesting, all these 12 just coming together. So these 12 come together in order to support the students who are then going to be brought into yep. this association. So uh, the, the aim was the students would be surrounded by the greats. And this culture really established what would become a mecca for creatives, and in particular animators. They, they start an animation program. So CalArts begins the character animation program in 1975. And Tim Burton was actually the third student accepted into the program. Oh, wow. I didn't know he was that hardcore, like one of the top three. Yeah, yeah. he, he certainly was. Now, the first two, the first person to uh, be accepted into the character animation program yep. at CalArts was Jerry Rees. Now, Jerry Rees goes on to be the director of The Brave Little Toaster. Created and directed The Brave Little Toaster. It's a very um, North American sort of cartoon. Okay. Um, sort of along that line of you know the the little the little um train that could sort of uh, story. Okay, cool. You know, uh, he was also visual effects supervisor for Tron in the eighties. Now that's cool. Yep. The second entrance into the CalArts animation program was a little known person at the time, 
called John Lasseter. Oh, Johnny, Johnny. He becomes a director, animation legend, and the founder of Pixar Animation Studios. Damn. A couple of films. Damn, this is hardcore. Yeah, it's crazy, right? So CalArts and Burton's classmates to follow became a hive of like animation wizards who really encouraged and fed off each other and created like this absolutely bonkers group of talented filmmakers. I'll just go through some other names that's that, that are in there. So we've got Jerry Reese and John Lasseter that we, we've already talked about. John Musker is also a part of that alumni. John Musker is the director of films such as The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, <gasps> Hercules, Moana. Hercules. Pretty much you choose any 90s and beyond great Disney animated film, Musker has been involved in some way. Uh, Brad Bird was a was a student. Brad Bird would move on and work on The Simpsons in the early days. He directed The Iron Giant, a fantastic Mission Impossible film, and became a mainstay of Pixar animation with his uh, films. Uh, Gary Truesdale, who went on to direct Hunchback of Notre Dame, oh. Beauty and the Beast, oh, and wow. a whole heap of Disney animated films. Another little-known person, Craig, named Henry Selick, was a member of the CalArts Character <gasps> Program, who goes on to direct Coraline and Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. Wow, good Lord. So these are just a few of the names, and there really is so many talented people in that like sort of couple-year period, all a part of CalArts at the same time, so hanging out together. And so you could really imagine... This became this boom where there's such a incredibly talented group of people all working within each other. You reckon they all stunk? I don't know. Hey, there, I reckon they're fucking stinky. Man. There are I reckon some... there'd be a stinky animation room. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I... <laughs> There'd have to be a stinky fucking animation. There's um, because oh, they're still students at this time, man. They're still students. Then they're they're geniuses. Well, sorry, they're um. Prodigies, <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I, I bet you they stunk. There's some really interesting stories. I wish I could remember. I've, I'll put the the source in the show notes if people want to read. But there's this great article where they actually reflect and interview people who were there, and they talk about things that were going on at Cal Arts at that time. That'd be that'd be and, awesome. And like we have to say, remember the that cultural burnt the toaster. <laughs> <laughs> the cultural impact of this room full of animators is that if you watch any Pixar movie, you watch any of these modern Disney films and a lot of other films, you'll often see the um, the Cars number plates in Cars or the train in another film will have A113 on it or A113 will just appear everywhere. And that was actually the, the name plaque on the door that <laughs> the, of CalArts where Lasseter and all the Pixar crew. Actually, I think Pete Doctor was a part of it as well. And what? There's, there's just all madness. these incredible like people at the same time. So the animation program was very focused on teaching students in the philosophies and stylations of Disney animation. Remembering Disney is now a big part of the the, the program itself and they're working to prepare yeah, people. Yeah, of course. So their, their aim was, as I mentioned, preparing the next possible generation of Disney animators. So at the end of each year, students would produce and present a piece of animation that would be assessed and critiqued by the Disney Review Board as part of their course. Yeah. Um, and from here, they would identify potential future animators and look to poach them for their own programs, yep. move them, moving them on. Now, during his time at CalArts, Burton really worked on honing his craft and, and 
1979, so three years after he's been in the program, he makes a short film titled The Stalk of the Celery Monster, <laughs> which he presents at one of these end-year Disney animation presentations. Yeah. Now, it was a pencil animated film that he used 8mm film to sort of film from above and put together. And it's about a dentist that likes to experiment on his patients, <laughs> creating monstrous versions of themselves. Uh, the, the animation's Disney style used throughout it, mixed with Burton's quirky gothic vibes, yeah. really struck a chord. And um, we got to watch a little piece of it. Oh, no. And, and it's it, one, his animation blew me away because it oh, looks like. Burton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just, well, you can say, it's horrible you say Burton-esque, but I don't, yeah. I don't want to overdo that word this season. But, like, can we say, this is how much of a cultural impact this man has made yeah. in cinema, is that we watch anything that's dark and gothic these days, and you don't say it's Raimi-esque. No. It's no. Burton-esque. Well, if it's got that twist to it. Yes. Like that humor. Well, it's got to have the whimsy, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, Which exactly. is this, this mixture of... Fear, comedy, and joy all thrown exactly. into one. And d- not and doesn't have to be. It could be one at a time. Yes, but it's it is. There's that whimsy. It's still. a balance. It's yeah. such a balance. So um, this animation really sort of hits that year. Now Burton's really funny in an interview that I, I read. He claims that the the reason that people were so impressed by this work is that. In that year, it was a lean year in terms of quality that people put out. So he's very self-depreciating. But really, at this point, Stalk of the Celery Monster was the piece of work that uh, had people notice Burton in terms of his animation skills. So people were like, this is someone we want to develop and really get involved at Disney. And he was actually offered an apprenticeship with Walt Disney Animation Studios. And we're talking, this is, is, uh, you know... Late teens, early twenties. Oh wow! Is it? Oh man! Yeah. <laughs> oh, that would be. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. so um, also in there, there's a really interesting point I recently wrote, and this just popped in my 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 mind. I I read that Burton actually at seventeen just decided to move in with his grandma. So I don't know whether that oh. was when he headed off to Cal Arts, and that was the best move for him. Yeah. Then, but he was out of home at seventeen, which is. Oh. That's Think about wild. 17, I'd go, whoa. So Burton accepts the opportunity and begins working at Disney Films as an animator. He also worked as a storyboard artist, a graphic designer, and a concept artist for films such as The Fox and the Hound, yep. Tron, and The Black Cauldron. <laughs> um, so we're talking sort of early 80s through to mid 80s. Now, at the time, Disney was huge, like a huge opportunity, but not easy for Burton. Uh, Burton actually feels at the time that the output that he was producing was nowhere near the quality of those people around him. Okay, yeah. And so he really struggled to fit within that Disney mold. He was working his first project. He worked as an animator on Fox and the Hound. Yeah. And his work actually is in the featured film. Uh, He jokes about the fact that he couldn't draw the foxes as cutesy as other people could. (laughs) So they gave him all the foxes that appeared in the distance. (laughs) Um, But... What's also really important to know about this time is that it's quite a transitional time for Disney animation as well. Yeah. And Burton hasn't arrived when it's in its prime. He's actually arrived when Disney are in this season where everyone struggled with the content they're making, the yeah. tone's different, the old guard is being replaced by new young blood, and there's sort of this 
tension that's going on. And if people really want to know about that, I'm going to sort of throw, go check out a documentary called Waking Sleeping Beauty. Fantastic It is an incredible documentary that actually chronicles this time from when Burton has started. Yeah. And this new wave coming out of CalArts that then move on to when they hit their goal. They almost closed it. Yeah, they actually had threatened to close it. Yeah, They moved them out of their big building into this tiny building. And um, it's really... You actually see Burton at the the boards. Yep. Yeah, and Um, he's just... He looks smelly. He... (laughs) And we'll get there a bit later, but Burton talks about at that time he'd actually found himself in a really dark place um, mentally. And so... It's this hard, hard time for him because he doesn't feel like he fits. He knows it's an amazing opportunity. So he wants to utilize it as best he can, but it's almost betraying his characters, yeah. you know, his character. And so, um, so, but we'll get there in a sec, Craig. Uh, so essentially the supremely talented people of this golden era are beginning to retire. And Burton talks about the fact that people still would say, what would Walt do? <laughs> and he was like, thinking about this fact that all these people are asking what would Walt do as if they know him, but they actually had never met him because he'd been gone for so long now. And so it was like this weird mantra floating around Disney that was sort of corrupting the creative talent. Yeah. And so um, he he really talks about it's like you're given the creative freedom but told boundaries within which to work within. Yeah. And he actually talks about the fact that it takes a very unique person to fit within that. So, you know, run with it, do whatever you want, but make sure it looks like this. Yeah, and exactly. So, and so, um, so, as you mentioned, you do see in Waking Sleeping Beauty a very young Tim Burton. <laughs> He's sitting at a drawing table and he's sort of creepily running his finger around a picture. Um, there's, there's, and, and in the documentary, he really comes off as bizarre and out of place amongst all these people who are quite happy and joyous in the way they talk and, and present. And there's even one interesting photo of him standing. I don't know if you remember it. He's like standing, smiling, but he's got blood pouring out of his mouth. Um, (laughs) but Burton talks about like the dark place that he finds himself. He's in his early twenties at this point. And, um, feeling out of place amongst all these people. And so in the interview about the alumni of CalArts, they talk about how often you would open a closet to go put your jacket in. And Tim Burton had just been standing in there in the dark for hours <laughs> and, and things like that. And, and someone asked this of Burton saying, you know, what, what's going on there? And he said, like, he, he really was in a dark place and didn't know what to do. So he played up to his oddities in order to, establish himself among these people. Yeah. And so he would do things like he had his wisdom teeth pulled, so he just came to work that day so he could walk around with blood dripping out of his mouth. And, <laughs> and, and all these all these <laughs> things like that, or people would find him sitting on top of his desk instead of actually doing work. Um, so, yeah, it's really funny. So, But when it all came down to it, um, while working on his assigned projects, Burton really felt bored and he was left alone a lot. So he actually talks about he, he, he had learnt how to fall asleep with a pencil on the paper <laughs> so that he could sleep in his office and then people, he'd hear him coming and he'd like continue moving his pencil as if he was drawing. <laughs> um, but he felt out of place and really couldn't 
fit in the mold that he was given. It felt it was like stifling him yeah. trying to do this work that he couldn't. Now, thankfully, during that time, he was given the opportunity to work on some other projects, not just animating. He, he got moved into uh, some other creative endeavors that allowed him to have a bit of fun. One of those was as a concept artist. Pretty much they identified that Burton had a unique style. Yeah. So why not, why not let him just create characters for their ideas? And so he was actually put as character designer for the Black Cauldron. And oh, wow. let to have his mind run wild. Now, none of those concepts really got used in the film. Of course. Um, but during this time, he also did some other work doing um, – some concept art and this connects in with one of his short films we'll talk about a bit later but tim burton actually did a lot of concept work on the film toys which would a decade later become the barry levinson film starring robin williams oh and so he did a lot of the concept art on that now if you remember that craig it's a weird film very weird with these japanese style toys that were all sort of opened up and yeah. created all these other things very prominent with lots of ducks. Big oh, yeah, mechanical that's right. Ducks. Yes, yes, yes. Now, later we will see a film which has a giant mechanical duck as a prominent part of the film in Batman Returns. Yeah. So there is a lot of uh, his work that sort of pop in there, and it actually, we'll talk about it when we get to his Hansel and Gretel film, <laughs> that these toys are a big part of the Hansel and Gretel film, mm. which pop up. So that's what sort of got him involved in this toys project as well so disney did identify that he had some talent and that could be used creatively in this space he didn't have to be this weird outlier um so his talents also got spotted by a disney executive called julie hickson now hickson would become a champion for for early work burton yeah and would act as a producer for some of his early work as well now also on top of that disney's head of creative development tom wilhite um loved his work as well. So both Hickson and Wilhite feel that Burton was someone that, given the right nurturing, his talent could actually turn out to be really great work. Yeah. So in 1982, uh, Tom Wilhite approves Burton to be given a budget of $60,000 to write, design, and direct his first short film. And Burton creates this short film called Vincent. <laughs> now, it's a six-minute black-and-white stop-motion short film about a boy named Vincent who fantasizes about being Vincent Price. Uh, <laughs> I love it so much. It's written in a Dr. Seuss style poem and is also heavily influenced by Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. Um, the the black and white gothic tale really gives this aesthetic. I don't know about you, Craig, but while watching it, the aesthetic and the emotions in this is so clearly Tim Burton. Like it's it's crazy how burtony it is it it's uh, to be honest for a second there i was like I, i'm actually going blank but i remember it now it, it it's <laughs> it's just so it's it seems so much more than a, just a first film oh like a first totally, you know what i mean like totally. you know and when they obviously you know, the parents come in and they start talking but um it just seems I don't know. It just seems so much talent are built into these these early short films. Oh, for six minutes, Craig, there is so much. There's Beetlejuice. There's The Nightmare Before Christmas. There's, you know, like even what I've not seen the film Frankenweenie. We've watched yep. the short film, yep. but not the feature. But 
you know, Corpse Bride and Frankenweenie are literally like future versions of yeah. Vincent. And even the character of Vincent fantasizes about digging up his dead wife and bringing her back to life, like we hear about in Corpse Bride later on, you know? So I was really... It's that grey aesthetic to it. You're just like... Oh, doesn't it? But even, like, the character design is so prominently Burton. Like, it's just so... <laughs> I can't... <laughs> I, like, don't, I don't... I don't honestly... Like that, that, that big That hawkish eyed, face, yeah. yeah. It's And wild hair. Yeah. Um, it's uh, like you could look at the character of Vincent and you could say... Oh, there's a baby Johnny Depp. Yeah. yeah actually, yeah. You know, um, but this is well before Johnny Depp and Burton are, are creatively working together. And I think when we talked about Burton and Depp clicking, that's because Depp probably is the version Burton would have loved, like the movie version of Burton. Yeah, he is. You know? He is. So, uh, yeah, it's just so incredible. So we might put it up on socials. There's Vincent um, is out there on YouTube for everyone to see. Uh, And like I said, it really does. You see so many glimpses of what we're going to get in these future films. It's almost like the perfect teaser to the season. Oh, it is. It is a good It It is a good teaser. Um, on top of this, what is really huge is at this early stage of his career, Burton was actually able to get Vincent Price to narrate this short film. <laughs> so his absolute hero is a part of it. He he really did love Vincent Price, and so the fact that he was on it. Now, the short film was released for about two weeks in cinemas. Yeah. It played before the Matt Dillon teen drama Tex. I've never seen it. Me either. And was really well received, but the tone and gothic slash dark nature of the short film made Disney feel a little bit uncomfortable. Oh, look, you put Vincent Price's voice on fucking anything. You know what I mean? Like, that's, you know, it made a Michael, it made Michael Jackson scary. Yes. Therefore, it can make anything scary. Vincent Price is an amazing actor. That's a wax. Beautiful voice. Such a beautiful voice. Uh, So, after two weeks in cinemas, Sydney decided that the short film should go into the Disney vault and away it went. No. Away. Um, the experience of making the short, though, was one that actually really buoyed Burton. He felt like, because I've been doing this, mm. I can really keep doing my other things as long as I know I'm going to have a project to work on that's yeah. not just this work that I don't enjoy greatly. So he he really loved the fact that he had these passionate projects he could work on. Vincent was also critically received. It played at a stack of global film festivals and won two awards, one at the Chicago Film Festival, and it actually oh, cool. won the Critics' Prize at Hanoi Film Festival in France. Oh. So it, it started garnering like some critical praise for an early project, which is, is pretty huge. That is so, pretty huge. So... As Disney moves into the 80s, uh, and just remembering, while we're talking his short film sort of work now, um, while he's doing this, he's working as a concept artist and just pumping work out for yeah. Disney and the animation love to know house. what he did. Yeah, yeah. Just out of curiosity, just the stuff he put together. There's um, some really cool pictures I might be able to, to source of his work for Black Cauldron. Oh, cool. That'd be um, cool. It's very Burton. Oh, I can't wait. Um, so as Disney starts moving into the 80s, they begin to expand and they create uh, the Disney Channel, oh, yeah. which is their television television network. And one of the programs they developed for the t- Disney Channel was a fairy tale focus where each week they had an interpretation of a classic fairy tale. Yeah. And it was shown as part of the Walt Disney Studio Showcase. So this this 
Walt Disney Studio Showcase was a weekly program, and so is it a cable channel, Disney Channel? I believe so. Yeah, because I never then, watched it. Well, no, we got sort of on a Saturday in Australia. Yeah, you'd get parts. You would from get the parts Disney from the Disney Channel because you'd always there. have that little advert in. Disney Channel presents, you know. Yeah, right? and they'd have the the ears, the mouse ears yeah. over everything. Oh. So, um, yeah, so this classic fairy tale series was part of the Walt Disney Studio Showcase. And Julie Hickson, who previously had champ- championed Burton for Vincent, uh, wrote a script around Hansel and Gretel for this showcase. <laughs> yeah. And she actually asked if Burton would like to direct it. Now, Burton agrees, and he goes on to direct his first live-action production. Now, in true Tim Burton style, he put his own spin on Hickson's version and armed with a budget of $116,000. No. Burton directs a Japanese-inspired reimagining of Hansel and Gretel featuring an all-Asian cast. I know. So brave. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it brave, made me go, right? It made me go, is Burton Asian? Crazy. You're like, I thought, like, is he? You know what I mean? But... Obviously, fun found out he wasn't, but yeah, I understand with a man of his, um, a man of his taste. Yeah, he would have had to been um, inspired by a lot of Asian ghost stories. So yeah, and and what Johnny Depp talks about in the forward of the Burton on Burton book is that there is no one that he has met before who has a greater film knowledge than Tim Burton. Wow, that is so pretty hardcore. He talks about Tim Burton can just rattle off anything and he knows it intimately. And so Imagine Burton, Quentin Tarantino sitting there. Oh, table. my goodness me. Um, and and Spielberg. Yeah. Spielberg's got a bonkers. Maybe Scorsese in there as well. He loves his film. But, yeah, Burton at this stage is really obsessed with Japanese cinema. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, the original Godzilla films he was just in love with. Yeah. And so... Well, that's um, stop motion anyway. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so you could see the jump from Ray Harryhausen to Godzilla is not hard, is Yeah, it? exactly. Um, and so he is very much at this point all about Japanese cinema. <laughs> and it really shows in this short oh, film, Oh, it, it shows incredibly. Um, the, the, the only slightly thing jarring about it is the fact that they speak English. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? You know what it? I mean? Like if there was, but they still they speak, they still speak in that um very that that um Asian ghost story cadence. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. Do you know what it reminds me of as well. It's like, and I really want to throw this out here. Uh, well, once again, we'll share this. There's a, a great um, as part of the Museum of Modern Art program. There is this YouTube video because these these were actually Vincent and uh, Hansel and Gretel were actually considered lost. They thought they would never be seen oh, again. Oh, really? They thought Disney had actually discarded them. No. Um, so much so that the Hansel and Gretel was believed to actually be like not true. Like it became this myth- mythological thing that people thought actually wasn't real. <laughs> and then when this um, museum started touring, uh, Showcase started touring, they had, it was introduced by Vincent Price. Yeah. And there's a YouTube clip that actually contains Vincent and then uh, Vincent Price introducing the Hansel and Gretel thing, including that creepy gingerbread man puppet on his shoulder. (laughs) Um, But I think it's what's really important. Watch it, please, people at home, because it's super ambitious 
It is. It's not the prettiest thing to look at. It's not. It looks really low budget, but it's no. pretty darn groundbreaking. It it it's pretty. It's one of those films that, in hindsight, you go fuck. That's amazing. You know what I mean? Hundred percent, Craig. I, I don't know if at the time I would have been like. That's my 116 grand, man. <laughs> like, in where, the early 80s. Go? Do you have new shoes or something, man? <laughs> you know, but, but you can see a creative. Oh, like, like, and not just ever. one of those. It's not a pretentious creative. No. You can actually see someone who's just, well, let's, and we you overuse this word of heaps, but you can see he's built his signature. Oh, most definitely. And it's actually, I'm throwing it out here. I can understand the jump for Burton to Pee Wee Herman watching Hansel and Gretel. Ooh, I still got to, I've just got to watch Pee Wee Herman. Because Pee Wee Herman to me is this like bizarre, it's like we're watching a bizarre kids program. Yeah. And one of the real things that really stood out for me during the Hansel and Gretel was the music. And I don't know if you remember, it's almost in Australia we have this show called Play School. Yep. And throughout Play School, oh, yes. they actually have a live pianist who, um, who basically is watching people interact on a stage and plays music yes. along with their movements. And Hansel and Gretel's music is completely that. Yeah, yes. And it, it's like it's like it's it's like the music is a translator. Yeah. 100% Craig. Now, I really started doing a deep wow. dive into this. Um and I shut my window down on my laptop, so I'm sorry, but uh it what really shocked me is that I think his name might be Michael Costa, if I remember rightly. No, it's not. But what the composer for it is, he's actually the composer for A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood, the Mr. Rogers oh, Show. wow. And so um, his sensibility is that, playing along as if he's accompanying whatever is happening live. Incredibly. And you get that sensibility in it. So it's like we're watching this gothic child's show like children's program, almost a gothic preschool program Yeah, that features a puppet gingerbread man who convinces them to eat him, yeah. like really creepily. But also, like, it's, it's, it sounds like it's very, very true to the old Brothers Grimm's type stuff. Yes. Like in that, that's dark, like fucking dark. Like, yeah, like you said, uh, uh, it, you know, it trying to, Get him to eat him, and stuff like that. And the mum and the the oh, mother. Oh, the stepmom. It it's, was it was horrible, wasn't it? Oh man, it was horribly great. Like not, and I don't mean horrible as in like poor quality. Well, it is a bit poor quality, man. It it's bit, pretty low fi but, but yeah, he's there's a big but. Um, sorry, and just to throw it, Johnny Costa's his name, not Michael Costa, oh, the okay, composer. Cool. But yeah, like like you're saying, Craig, there are moments in that film where I'm like. You know, there's moments where it looks like they're just standing in front of white, a white sheet. Yeah, that's pretty much a chunk of it. And Whenever they're at home. Yeah, it's like they're just standing in front of a white wall. Now, later, when they're in the witch's house, yeah, that white wall gets sort of pulled apart and played with in such a fun and an innovative way when they're actually, like, eating the house and all that sort of goop is pouring out of the walls and stuff. Like, those sorts of things you could see would be really confronting for Disney. See, but I think also that that's an also another Tim Burton aesthetic 
Yes. It's that the white wall, same way with the that perfect suburban hat, suburban. Yes. Thing, is about to be upset. Yeah, totally and trash. Fucking weird and whimsy. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, and and that's where it goes. You know that. And and I'm only thinking of this in hindsight now. I never thought of it as I was watching. I was just like, "Fuck, that's a bad background." But the white <laughs> there, there's a lot of thought. I think there would be in that white background. That white oh, background just definitely, Craig. And again, like just as it was with Vincent. I don't know about you, but like for me, Hansel and Gretel was like, "Oh my gosh, he's so there already." Like I could see with the toys and the appearance of those wooden ducks and everything. I'm like. Oh wow! Here's all that weird stuff in Batman Returns that I never really understood. You I know? know, yeah, exactly. Um, you can see where Edward Scissorhands is born out of that. You know, like again, Scissorhands has this gothic fairy tale set within suburbia. You, yeah, you know, exactly. That, that all takes place. So, but it has a weird, also has a weird view of childhood, childlike yeah, things. Yeah, 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 and so. Like, while it may not be the prettiest thing to look at, and again, we're probably looking at an uh, a scanned VHS copy <laughs> that we're watching because this thing is so hard to come by. Yeah. But Burton is so prevalent in this. And again, you realise just how... Like, I just got this sense of, this is a really educated person. Like, yeah. a really clever and educated person at such an early stage of their career. Oh man, it's it's it makes you excited. Does doesn't it? Makes you it? very excited. Does and um again, dear, it, it made me feel a bit like I'd love to find out if Burton grew up on HR Puff and stuff. <laughs> you know those yeah, oh, sort yeah, of yeah. shows. Yeah, that weird shit. Yeah, because the witch has that sort of again that 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 very uh, Eastern Asian sort of cadence to the way they talk. Yeah, you exactly. Know? And so it really is. It's it's quite unsettling to watch. Do it you? is. It is, and del- and you can see deliberately. Yes. But I think it's also because he he sees it from a child's view. Yes. Where everything can just look distorted. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's not an easy explanation for everything, and I think he he puts that beautifully in that. I love it. Because those two kids, man, like their world around him is just spinning. Yeah, <laughs> and he really plays with things. Like, I also love his use of, like, um, they're almost like shadow puppets at stages in there. Um, you know, those sort of yeah. big landscape shots, which, again, you've got those beautiful, long, thin, slender, curling trees that are so oh, Burton-esque. Yeah. Um, so, oh, I just love it. So it's the 30-minute short film aired once on the Disney Channel as part of oh. the Walt Disney Studio Showcase, but it was actually shelved due to its dark tone, which didn't click with viewers. And the project was actually hidden in such a way, as I mentioned, that its very existence began existence began to be questioned until it popped up at a 2009 exhibition of Burton's work for the Museum of Modern Art. Uh, now, so following Vincent, Burton remained working as a concept artist, in particular for the Black Cauldron, as we, we, we um, mentioned. But he's at this place where he just starts questioning now, I've had two projects I've worked on, which I've loved the experience on. Yeah. Both times Disney have sort of pulled it and hidden it from existence. Yeah, they've said I, that, you know, it's I not their taste. That's right. And so he's starting to think, oh, maybe this isn't the right fit for me. Yeah. Um. So I'm just going to take a little moment here, Craig, and just give a bit of context as to probably what's going on behind the scenes at Disney. Awesome. Here. Uh, and once again, I'll refer to the documentary Waking Sleeping Beauty, which there's a really fascinating part that's going on here, which is uh, as Roy Disney has got a bit older, 
now. Walt's passed. Roy's sort of been there for a little bit. The animation um, has started to struggle financially, and Disney as a whole has started to struggle financially. So what they actually do is they bring in a more business-minded CEO to run the company in Michael Eisner. Now, um, he also brings in around this time, Eisner brings in a new head of uh, animation, and he's played off throughout this, and in his career, and as you've seen in real life, Craig, <laughs> uh, is a bit renowned as a bit of a tyrant, mm-hmm. and that's one Jeffrey Katzenberg. Now, Katzenberg's arrival at Disney is really huge, and actually it sees Disney step into a new era where they become um, more business-focused as opposed to art-focused, yeah. but it really stepped on a lot of people's toes uh, Katzenberg uh, really didn't like the tone of some of the work being produced at the time by Disney and made it really known that he didn't like it. It actually, his extreme personality leads to a lot of animators actually leaving or becoming dis- incredibly disillusioned with life at Disney. Yeah. Um, so after being hired, Katzenberg really takes aim and draw, draws his focus on the Black Cauldron. And so he ends up fighting the creative team quite a lot over the tone of The Black Cauldron. Yeah. Well, it is a dark film. It's a very dark film. You could probably say it's probably one of Disney's darkest animated yeah. films. Uh, but his battle with the animators and creative team got so big that it's reported that Katzenberg actually asked for elements of the film to be removed. They refused, so he actually edited the finished film himself. Mm. and removed up to 20 to 15 minutes of story out of it to try and remove darker bits of the film. Now, things got so out of hand in this space that CEO Michael Eisner actually has to step in to rein Katzenberg in because he was becoming so overbearing and they were really at risk of losing all their talent. Yeah. Um. So, and around this time, Spielberg starts his own... Yeah. Animation company, which people start to jump ship on and things like that. So it's really, they're trying to to save this arm, but they're actually moving it more towards the end. And please watch the documentary because they do it so much more justice. And and as a very personal experience, he's a fucking terrifying man. (laughs) Like when we first met him, he was incredibly charming. Oh, wasn't he? Wasn't he? On a red carpet. So we saw him in Madagascar. Two. Two. Escape to two. Africa. So he, we, we, when when we broke in, <laughs> another story. But yes, yeah, we indeed. actually interviewed him and took a photo of him, and he was incredibly charming. He I was. was. Like, Man, that's Jeffrey Katzenberg. He's, he's Calm, an awesome dude. Nice. Then, Monsters vs. Aliens. Yep. Um, we're interviewing him, and the publicist comes in and goes, "Look, Jeffrey's coming in. He's not in a good mood. <laughs> Keep your fucking questions on topic." <laughs> and I stood, I sat there, I had my questions ready to go because you and I were very, always very prepared. We were professional. We, we, yeah, exactly. We were very professional. Um, and a poor guy next to us at David, the round table, poor David at the round no. table, um, decides to ask a question about um, animated R rated films. Yep. And Jeffrey Katzenberg fucking lost his poopy, lost his poopy, and was fucking. Terrifying, man. Yeah, terrifying. Now these are aren't uh, now. Jeffrey Katzenberg is very much 
the Napoleon fucking um, syndrome. He is a small dude. Yep. He is a very small dude. And he was terrifying. Yep. Terrifying in an almost hilarious way. You know, like when the teacher's going off like wild off the head at someone sitting next to you. Yep. And you're terrified, but fucking laughing your head off at the same time. <laughs> this is what I was doing. Because I was like, when he asked the question, I was like, what, what the fuck is Jeffrey Katzenberg going to do about like, yeah, you know, and no, nah, went off, went and off. Misguided question too, because oh, but totally he's talking to the head of DreamWorks Animation, which is all about light children's films. Yes. Who has a history of Disney. Yes. Like where is he ever touching, you know, like. Well, it's about knowing who you're interviewing, isn't it? Oh, it's about do listening to research. what the publicist came yep. in and said. Keep your questions on top. <laughs> like he went off for the second guy because they asked about James Cameron's 3D TVs that were coming out. Oh, yeah. He was asked about 3D TV technology. He goes, well, I don't know James Cameron, so why would I know that? <laughs> and I was like, Yikes. whoa, another bad one. But the, the scary thing was it came to me next, like after David, and it came, came to me and I was like, Okay, I can't even remember my question. (laughs) But it was on track and he answered it, like, switched. Answered it like pure publicist, you know? Yeah. The CEO of a multi-conglomerate. I was like, fucking hell. (laughs) (laughs) I still love it, man. Oh, Oh, horrifying. So I guess the reason I give this info and the reason we talk about what sort of person Katzenberg is that... It's really relevant to an artist like Tim Burton. Yeah. Who is working for a company that is giving him wonderful opportunities now. And he knows that his tone is dark and gothic. And the person in charge of animation is just coming through and chopping the heck out of anything too dark. Yeah. So you would start to think that, oh, maybe, maybe I'm at risk I'm here. here you know? Maybe I'm in the crosshairs. You would yeah. be. Oh, well, you are. Yeah. You are. He's surely in Jeffrey Katzenberg's crosshairs. You would think they so. They wouldn't put that in the documentary because they're both so prevalent in the um they're both so prevalent still in the industry, you yep. know what I mean? Yeah, totally. But yeah, he's in the crosshairs. I'm sure they're butted heads. Well So the Black Cauldron's released and it's actually a commercial and critical disaster. Yes. From memory uh, it was. In particular, it comes under fire for its tone. Yep. And sloppy editing, which affects the storytelling. So, what's uh, what's cool here, though, is that throughout the production of Black Cauldron, Bert, Burton is once again being championed by Julie Hickson. Love who, you, Julie. I know. So, she secures Burton a budget of $1 million to make a 29-minute live-action short called Frankenweenie. <sighs> now, Frankenweenie is the, the story of a young boy whose beloved pet dog is hit by a car. And after seeing a school science lesson about electricity and the way that a body's muscular responses take place, <laughs> he decides to dig up this dog named Sparky and try and bring him back to life. Once again, so Burton. How the fuck did he get that budget? One million dollars, Craig. Like, admittedly, you see that on the screen in this one. Oh. Um, like, it's on the screen. You know, you, every actor's a known actor, you know yeah. what I mean? Daniel Stern's in it. Oh, look, let's just talk cast. So the the film's actually it's heavily inspired by 1931's Frankenstein film. Yeah, and uh, I I found it super delightful. Hey, oh, I really it is had a great fantastic. Time. 
Um, but it features an incredible cast. Shelley Duvall's in there. Yep. We're talking like Shelley Duvall, the shining Shelley Duvall. Yeah. Uh, At the time of the shining. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> you know what I mean? right. It's, it's like in her prime. Daniel Stern's there. Uh, if you don't know who he is, you'd probably know him from Home Alone. Yep. But he's in a heck of a lot of great films. Barrett Oliver's in there. Yep. Uh, we're talking Bastion Balthazar Bucks from NeverEnding Story. And... Super cute in a film we've already talked about, Cocoon. He's the grandson. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's in right. Cocoon. What am I thinking of? Uh, also, did you know Sophia Coppola's in there? No. Sophia Coppola is the blonde classmate. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, that's oh, quite prominent. I'll watch it. Um, so she's in there. Now, Disney's plan for this film was originally to to have it play. They they called it a featurette. So the aim was, uh, and Burton actually talks about it, is that... Um, that there was a bit of studio interference as this was being made. Yeah. And his intention was this to be another 20 minutes longer so it would be a feature film. Oh, okay. But they had to cut it down because they were being sort of hurried along and asked to move things, finalise things. But the plan was that it would be playing along before the cinematic re-release of The Jungle Book. Yep. Uh but then was later rescheduled to be shown in 1984 with the cinematic re-release of Pinocchio. Okay, yeah. Sure. Now, Pinocchio is quite a dark film. So yeah, you exactly. Could, you could sort of see it fitting with that that um, that sort of sensibility, I guess. But just like Vincent, Disney felt the tone was not quite quite what they were after. So, yep. no one actually looking at his storyboards? Oh, they're just popping in afterwards. Julie Hickson is one of the head of creatives. She's hiding shit, man. Yeah. Like, I'm glad she did. Don't yeah. get me wrong. Yeah. But fuck, man, she's hiding shit. You would very much believe that, wouldn't you? Yeah. Oh, look, look, Tim, I think you're being a bit too dark. Hey, what's your next thing? Oh, I want to do a story about bringing my dog back from the dead. <laughs> you know, do electricity. And yep. then he gets hunted. It's like Frankenstein, but with a dog. Yeah, 100%. You know, he stitches neck everything. Yep, <laughs> totally. <laughs> <laughs> what spun me out was this. What spun me out was this was live action. Yeah, I thought me it too. Was, I thought it was animated. Animation, obviously, because the, the, the feature, feature film we is. talk about later. Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. But didn't his aesthetic really work in it? It was amazing. You know what I couldn't stop thinking of? What? Sleepy Hollow. Oh, so true, Craig. Even the ending. Like, the ending, obviously, yes, the ending is um, is a, a pure tribute to Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, even the windmill and everything like that. But it's also the ending of um, Sleepy Hollow. So great. I didn't even think of that, Craig. I know. It's the windmill and all. It's the windmill and everything. And the fire, everything. It's the it's the ending. It's you'll see the he actually mimics the shot when he looks up at the um windmill. <sighs> and you know, the windmill drifts off into the sky. It's like fucking huge. Sack same. Oh I love and Do you know what I've, I I love that Johnny you went Depp, there, Craig? The um, <laughs> um <laughs> From memory, he's really good in Sleepy Hollow. Uh, it's my favorite. It's, it's my favorite Johnny Depp film. I can't wait to it's get it. It's my there. favorite Johnny Depp film of all time. Do you know what else? Sleepy Hollow always makes me want to watch another Johnny Depp film, which is From Hell. Oh yeah, so I've only watched that, that once. I, I so good in that. Um, but I, I love that you went there with the windmill, Craig, because I do think the Burton actually these short films. I wonder if they spent so long in the vault. And the same thing happens with Frank and Weenie. They get yeah. put in the vault and probably Burton never thought that they would see the light of day again. That I think he actually does start poaching pieces out of these films 
these short films and reuses them in his work later. But I think you, I think we're with other directors who have seen this. You know what I mean? Like maybe yeah. Zemeckis did it with "I Want to Hold true. Your Hand" with the electricity. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, I think it's just those shots. They go, well, I've got a bigger budget now, and I yeah. fucking love that shot. I just couldn't do this on the last shot because of budget. Yeah, I think I can do it this time. I can nail it. Yeah, exactly. Give I can me a nail that. To nail I can it. nail that aesthetic. You know, you know, yeah. all that windmill needed, Johnny Depp. <laughs> now I can do it. Thank God. Love it so much. <laughs> uh, so, like Vincent and Hansel and Gretel, Disney feel the tone's not quite what they're looking for, and I just can't see how it got past storyboard. Well, it actually leads to Burton being fired from Disney. Yeah, see, I would make that. I would make that choice. Yep. Their 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 reason was that, and you could imagine a Jeffrey Katzenberg. Yeah. Right, and Katzenberg is involved in this decision. Oh yeah. Uh, he, he'd love firing. I reckon he'd get a little hard on. One million dollars is invested into this dog starring Frankenstein story. Fucking awesome. And he would be thinking, I can't put this in front of films. But you couldn't. No, and you couldn't because... Like, let's be very honest. You couldn't even put that in front of a Pixar film. No. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this is the thing you have to be honest about. Like, it's, everything that's happened is because, as Jeff has been pointing out through this whole thing, he does not fit a Disney template. No, not at all. Does not fit a Disney template at all. And it's good. It's a good thing. Yes, it's, it's a, a great good thing. thing. If he fitted it and they just... Or he tried to fit more of it... We yep. would have lost Burton. Yeah, we totally. Wouldn't, we wouldn't be having Burton on Burton. No. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just... We totally wouldn't, Craig. No. We totally wouldn't. So he is uh, let go. Their reason is that his tone was viewed as too dark for Disney and that his work that he was producing was actually wasting company resources. It's crazy, isn't it? But do you know what's what's more astounding to me, Craig, is that this becomes the very thing that Disney wanted later on. Oh, of course. Of course, <laughs> but like that's there's there's also the shifts between yeah, you know, like nineties, early two thousands got a little bit dark as well. You know, everything yep. got a little bit dark. You know, we're still coming out of that little bit of darkness sometimes in the anti hero bullshit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um but yeah, there's these are darknesses still has that place. Yeah. So true, Craig. Now I love Burton's asked about it in an interview oh, that I awesome. read. Cool. And he actually says, uh, it probably isn't as bad as what people say it is. You know, yes, I left, but I was already thinking about it, yeah. essentially is what Burton's saying. But he goes, pretty much, it was Disney saying, thank you very much, but you go your way and we'll go our way kind of thing. Thank God. And so they did. It's funny. Here's a quick question for you. Uh, uh, yeah. Off topic. I think out of all his Kalar alumni, yep, he's the best. Oh, ooh. <laughs> I know. There's con- there's con- so so okay. So now we've got Brad Bird, obviously. Yep, we've got. Well, look, let's be honest. We've got Pixar. It's it's yeah, Tim Pixar Burton against Pixar. Okay, so impact wise. Oh, I would, I would say. I know you're a huge Pixar fan, Rick. Oh, I'm a huge, I'm and it has, it has a huge Disney animation fan as well. And when you start thinking about films like Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, yeah, true, 
all those films, which again, Waking Sleeping Beauty talks about that era so great. Oh yeah, fucking um, oath. And how they put all their money into Pocahontas and not yeah. and not the Lion King yeah. and all these at the time. Yeah. And and I think when you start thinking about those films, they have a huge impact. But if I'm to talk about here's what I love about Tim Burton yeah. that I'm hoping I see this season. Yeah. And we'll hopefully and we've yeah, done this yeah. before. We're, we're, you and I are too fucking optimistic sometimes that so we think, this is going to be oh, and, the wave. And then and we're like, oh. I think after the last couple seasons we've had, you know, like I really had high hopes for Michael Mann. Yeah. Uh, Catherine Bigelow, I, I was so... Blown away. Yeah. And I had the lowest hopes. Yeah. And, and, and I think my fear here is that I know I love Tim Burton films, but I'm worried that through this lens of the podcast that Burton will not be as great in my mind as I think he is. Well, here's a question that we'll ask at the end of, okay. So I want to remember this question for the next one. What is Hollywood look like without Tim Burton? Uh, yeah, see, and this is where I was probably leading Craig is that out of everyone out of Cal arts. Yeah. Tim Burton probably has the most unique and important voice. What does Hollywood look like without Brad Bird? Oh, John Lasseter. Oh, without John Lasseter. You, well, no, I think John Lasseter. You but don't, we're talking in it, but but we're talking. We're all talking behind and in front. Obviously, yeah. uh, without John Lasseter, I think John Lasseter is probably the closest to Tim Burton in there. John Lasseter. No, no, that's what I think. John Lasseter. These are the two is, ones that are, is like we got to think about the uh, technologic. Oh yeah, 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 exactly. Advances of cinema, which Lasseter plays a monster part in. Like the the work that Pixar did, like you know, Pixar gets bought by Apple. Oh yeah, you know, and, and and partners with George Lucas, and just all these people that start developing incredible technology that become modern CGI as we know it. Oh yeah, incredible. You, you know, so I think Lasseter probably creatively as well. You know, like. The the things that you know, Toy Story did for the industry. Oh, it's that the computer animation was yeah, and so I think you know again without a John Lasseter, Jeffrey Katzenberg doesn't become the mogul that he is now. No, exactly. Um, but if I'm to think like in a in a Hollywood sense, Tim Burton, it's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> it's, Tim, it's, a fucking, it's a question. Seriously, it's I think it's a question that you need to research more. Oh, a hundred percent. And like Tim Burton's interesting because I think for the general film going people, yeah. If you said from the director of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory yeah. and the director of um, Nightmare Before, not the director before, creator yeah. of Nightmare Before Christmas, people would go, "I want to see this movie." But if you said from Tim Burton, I think a lot of the general public wouldn't know who Tim Burton is. Hence the reason why we do what we do. Um. And so it's really interesting because he's the 10th highest grossing director of all time. Mm. Therefore, people go see his movies. Yeah, exactly. But the, I guess the question that I then posit to you is, do people, and we'll find out as the season go on, do people generally tend to go watch because it's a Johnny Depp film? Do people go watch because it's a Batman film? Well, I think Lame Ranger proves No. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was in a bad time. Yeah, Johnny Depp's crew. That was. <laughs> but, and I know you like to poke the bear, Craig. I do. I, I do. I do. Uh, okay. No, no. Oh, look, truth of it is, oh, well, truth of it is, it's something that I, I can only know the impact, the Hollywood impact 
Tim Burton has yep. after watching all these films. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I need to watch it and go, okay, I I see this director now who takes that. Yeah. I see this director now who does that. You know what I mean? And and, yep. and so that's why I'm like, let's let's leave this one for the end. Yeah. I and then it. we can just have a good, good power. I love it so power. much, Craig. I love it. So, First and last. Yes. Oh, that's our name, Craig. Oh, oh yeah. Boo. So Frank and Meanie, Frank and Weenie, not Frank and Meanie, uh, after <laughs> being fired from Disney <laughs> and the issues with the tone that they have, Frank and Weenie actually has moved into the Disney vaults without being released with either the Jungle Book or Pinocchio. And um, Burton moves on from Disney. Now, Frank and Weenie does get a cinematic release. Oh, cool. Two years later in the UK. Following the success of Burton's first film, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Oh, cool. And we'll get there a bit later. So, despite not being embraced by Disney, Frank and Weenie actually goes on to receive critical acclaim. And Frank and Weenie is actually that short film that introduces Burton and his unique artistic voice to the world. Yeah. It's sort of that first moment where people are like, there's something really special in this. Yeah, exactly. You know, and and it stood up. And I think it's thanks to that big budget because you see it all on screen. Oh, yeah. This, it's yeah. so there and beautiful. Um, so following this, Shelley Duvall actually reaches out and asks if Burton would be interested in working on a project again with her. And this is a TV project based on uh, a series she hosted for Showtime called Fairytale Theatre. Um, now, Showtime had had run this series where each week it was sort of like an anthology season, uh, mm. a series where each week a director would do their own take on a famous fairy tale. Oh, cool. And so Duval asked him if he'd like to work on one, and Burton is given uh, agrees and is given uh, an episode which ends up being called Aladdin and His Wonderful Lamp. Oh, this would be interesting. And so You if, never sent me this, did you? No, 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 no. Um, <laughs> I, wish I was like, "Fuck!" I never. I watched could try track it down. That. Actually, I should. <laughs> I should look in it. It's probably out there. Um, but it featured a cast that included James Earl Jones as the genie. Oh, cool! Leonard Nimoy as an evil Moroccan magician. Fantastic! And Robert Carradine as uh, one of the prominent characters. I think he's the lead character in it, actually. Uh, so the entire experience was pretty invaluable for Burton. Um, it was entirely filmed on tape. It's the first time that it's like not using your eight mil. Yeah. Um, and it actually really helped Burton because it establishes something that he never looks back on, which is the the restrictions that are placed on TV filmmaking. Burton realized they're really not conducive to his creative flow. Okay. Um, so doing this project, he realized, and he's glad that it was this project and not a film that he's not a director for hire. And it really shows him that if his heart's not in it, he's just not able to direct something. He's not going to be able to give what he needs, which again harkens back to that he wants to be attached to a character before he works on it. And so this project, while great um, and keeping him working while he's no longer working for Disney, um, basically gets him to a point where he knows... I'm not going to work on this unless I'm really keen and involved from the get-go. Yep. And I'm really excited because I think it might be, is it Burton's first television work, the Wednesday TV series that he's working on for Netflix at the moment? don't know. 
I'd be really no interested idea. because that's a long time to not dabble in television again. Oh yeah, you know. But I, th- I don't think I don't think it's out of any fear or anything like that. I just think you never had the necessity to do so. And probably television's in a golden era where there is so much creative freedom now, yeah, and the, budget. The, now there's very little difference. Yeah. Well, God, they spent two hundred million on the friggin' Halo series. No, it's pretty wild, isn't it? And it's a piece of shit first episode. Oh, is it? Mm-hmm. I haven't watched it yet, Craig. You don't need to, Jeff. You don't. Oh, that's disappointing. You don't need to. Oh. I but- look. Uh, look, I'll probably give the other ones a chance afterwards. But yeah, so far, you don't need to. I'll wait until a few are if released. Weirdly, it's weirdly cheap. Really? It's not like it's weirdly. It's not the effects are there. Some of them. But it's weirdly cheap. Oh. I know. I was fucking disappointed too. That's so disappointing, Craig. Sorry to jump off. No, yeah. that's all right. Now, Craig, that's um, the journey to basically what begins Tim Burton's filmography. And so I think we're, we're pushing in a territory that's going to go well over our allocated time slot. Oh, yeah. Uh, but we've had an awesome episode so far. Let's see. So... I think this is a great spot to pause for part one. Yeah. And come back next week where we will talk all things his filmography. And I'm really excited for that because we're really going to dive deep on that. So, Craig, in between now and then, where can people find us so we can share some of these awesome short films? Guys, guys, guys. Go on to Instagram. Go on to Twitter. Go to FFTL Podcast. Um, If not... Oh, hashtag at FTOTLpodcast, whatever you want. Yep. But go to um, Facebook for First to Last Podcast. We're on there. Get on yep. there. Um, comment sure comment on our Instagram as well. Yep. Um, uh, if not, info at FFTLpodcast.com where there is where the best way to email us um, or go to our website, www.fftlpodcast.com. Yes, love it. As we always say, drink Glee Coffee. Use that FFTL code. 15% can- off. That's right. Love it so much. So we will be back next week to yes. talk the full filmography of Tim Burton. Boom shakalaka. Can't wait. I'm so excited. Oh, this is going to be awesome. It, it is going to be awesome. Isn't I can't it, Craig? Wait. It's so good. So from all of us here at From First to Last Podcast, I'm Jeff Reed. I'm Greg Gillian. We'll catch you next week. See you guys. <laughs>